Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Thanks, Steve. Uh, let me open this in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, um, we are grateful that you are fighting for us. Lord, that Jesus, you said that you would establish your church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Lord, that um, you would preserve your church on the earth until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, until the gospel is preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then the end will come. And Lord, you have promised that you would preserve your church faithfully in the midst of that. And so, Lord, we count ourselves truly blessed to be your people, to be your church, because we know, Lord, we can't lose, not because we're so mighty or brave or, or smart, but Lord, because the God of the universe is on our side. So, Lord, thank you for standing for your church to preserve your people. And Lord, in, uh, in light of that, we want to pray for Ron LaFoon, who is, uh, who is sick, who is fighting uh, weakness and illness. And Lord, would you just bless him with whatever it is that he needs today, right now, to know, to believe, to take, to get uh, injection of, whatever it is, Lord. I pray that you would meet Ron right where he's at and feed him the things that he needs to, to do well in your eyes. And Lord, we pray for Rachel and for Tim and Michelle who are uh, there with him and, and taking care of him. Lord, would you grant them strength and uh, resolve when they need to argue with doctors and grace when they need to beg for mercy. And um, Lord, all the wisdom that you can pour out on them. I thank you that you have shown yourself to be faithful so far. And we pray that you would continue to do that. Lord, we pray also for our brother, Kevin Reese. Uh, Lord, would you renew his strength as well and, and uh, clear his lungs and get him back up on his feet soon. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, open our minds so that we might see and hear. Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would turn and be made new. And Lord, would you bless this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this week... Um, I was half tempted to say, well, we're going to do um, 
Romans 12 or Romans 13 again because of all the stuff that's gone on in, in uh, Washington uh, this week. Uh, we need to remind ourselves again of uh, what the relationship between the, the church and the politics are. But as I was reviewing this and studying it some more, I, I realized actually this is the message that we need in light of what's happened in Washington, D.C. Um, our nation is in serious trouble right now. Um, we are pulling apart at the seams. Uh, when you look to the left, the left is drifting further left. There's talk of socialism and, and other, uh, other extreme things that are, that are heading in a direction that just doesn't seem right. And then this week in the Capitol, um, this attempted insurrection uh, shows us that the right is drifting farther to the right. And these two are happening at the same time and probably in opposite reactions to each other. And so we're left as a nation to say, well, what, what's at the core? What do we hold on to? Now, the good news is that most of us are more towards the center than the two extremes. But the extremes are vocal and they're pulling and they're, they're tugging on our nation. And so um, as, as Christians, what we need to ask is, is what is our role in all of this? Uh, what, what are we supposed to do? How do we react to this? Um, what is it that the Lord is calling us to do as the church of Jesus Christ in this unique setting at this unique time? And the answer that Paul gives us here in chapter 12 is that we need to be the church first. That, that is the most important thing we can do for the nation is to be the church before we are Americans. We need to be Christians. We need to be the church. So I wanted to jump ahead to 13. Well, we don't get to chapter 13 until we deal with chapter 12. Paul's line of thinking is before you talk about government, you have to understand what it means to be the church. And so this week, our message, we're going to look at the beginning of being the church or, or the beginning of what the church is all about. What is it like now to have been justified by faith and to now be one of Christ? And, and how do you live? Well, first, we are the church. Then we come to ask the question of how do we relate to Caesar? So it's, it's an, an important answer that Paul gives us. And it's, it's extraordinarily important in times like this when our nation is heading in two different directions. Because you think you may have to pick a side and say, well, I'm going to be on the right side. Um, but that's not actually the, the answer that we need. Not as the Church of Jesus Christ. That's not what we're actually looking for. Um, when it comes to diagnosing what's going on in our nation and in our culture, um, I think one of the best answers that I've seen so far is uh, a book called A Time to Build by a man named Yuval Levin. And what Yuval Levin says in this book is he looks at this idea called institutions. And what he says an institution is, is an institution is a durable form of the common life. And in America, the problem is our institutions are falling apart. They're being taken apart slowly but surely. Trust in them is eroding. Um, the, the strength of the institution is weakening as individualism is on the rise. And so when he looks around, he, he says what an institution is supposed to do, ideally what it should do for you is it should be formative. An institution should make you into a specific type of person. So the most bedrock um, uh, institution is the family. And parents have a responsibility to raise their children and to, to teach their children how to behave in this world. And so that's the foundational institution. But a lot of families we see coming apart at the seams. 
um, kids are ruling the roost or being just totally ignored or being abused and, and neglected. And so that institution is falling apart. Think about the Boy Scouts. If, if somebody says that they are an Eagle Scout, you expect something from them, don't you? You say this person has gone through this process with the Boy Scouts and an Eagle Scout is, has internalized all of these things that the Boy Scouts have been teaching and it has formed them into a specific type of person. Um, political parties are supposed to be institutions that are formative. So think about an, an, a political party. Um, ideally, everybody who is part of that a political party is pulling in the same general direction. And so you would have somebody who would not want to say something that would alienate another part of the party. But what has happened to our political parties is they've turned from formative into platforms. And so you have people who will come and they will use a political party as a platform to announce who they are, to, to be who they are. And they don't care if that affects somebody in a different part of the nation. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to them, but that's not how ideally a, a political party should work. That's, that's a, 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 an institution. And so when it comes to the church, Levine mentions the church, that, that the church is an institution, um, but he's not a believer. And so I don't think he really understands the tremendous degree to which the church is an institution. Um, as we join the body of Christ, as we become part of the church of Jesus Christ, we join an institution. It has expectations of us. It has ways of doing things. It has ways of, of leading us. But what the goal of the church or the role of the church is, is we're called to make disciples. And we're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So that institution of the church is formative. And it is one of the primary ways that God conforms us to the image of Christ. The other thing about the church as an institution that surpasses all the other ones is there is no other institution on the earth that will endure forever. All other institutions will fade. They will fail. Nations will rise and fall. The, um, the political um, parties that exist will, will erode and fall away. Leaders will come and go. The Rotary Club will cease to be at some point. And in the future, we will not be given in marriage or be married, but we'll be like the angels. So even the idea of family as an institution, a forming institution will be gone, but the church will endure. And so when we look at the question of what's happening in our nation and how should we respond, we need to be the institution that God has established us to be. We need to be the church. And, and one of the things that troubled me, I, I had tears in my eyes when I saw it, during the protests that happened on the 6th, there were Christian flags being waved. There, were, there was a flag that said, uh, Jesus is my savior and Trump is my president. There was Christian music being played through this, the, the whole thing. And that broke my heart. Not because Christians are supposed to not be involved with politics, but because what that does is it stops being the church as a unique, different institution and marries it to a political party. It, it marries it to a political way of doing things. And that's something that's called nationalism. Um, it, it is a, a, a nationalized religion, and it has dire consequences to have a nationalized religion. Uh, there was a tweet, a Twitter thread this week that I read that I thought just nailed this issue. Uh, a young man named uh, Jared Stacy, he's a PhD candidate, but his Twitter thread was great as he's describing what uh, religious nationalism looks like. And he used the Bible, of course. He said, 1 Kings chapter 12, 
David has established the kingdom. He has united the people under his rule. Solomon has taken the reins, has built the temple, has established Jerusalem as the, the, the center of the nation uh, by putting the temple there. And everything is going great till we get to chapter 12 when the kingdom splits. And the northern tribes under King Jeroboam have a problem because what's happening is the northern tribes are trying to establish their identity as themselves, but everybody keeps going south to Jerusalem to worship. And so what, what King Jeroboam does is he has to solidify his kingdom. He has to secure his kingdom because his kingdom is now in jeopardy if people are, are migrating south to worship. So what does he do? He revised the religion of the people. He, he didn't scratch it all and start from the beginning. What he did is he, he built two golden calves and he said, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. So he takes part of their religion and he twists it so that now people don't have to go south to Jerusalem. They can worship these golden calves right there. He, he, he rebuilt the myth. He rebuilt the story of the nation. And so he builds high places for them to worship. He puts idols in Dan and Bethel, puts high places up on the hills. And he says, these are the gods that saved you. Why did he do that? For political gain, for political purpose. So he, he revises the story. Now he can't rely on the Levitical priests because the priests of Levi are heading south to the temple. So now he's going to establish his own priests. Anybody can be a priest. If you just get hired, you can be that. It's, it's a, an alternative. It's more convenient sacrificial system because it stays, keeps people there. Um, it, keeps, it stops people having trips to his rival. And so now he has consolidated his power by taking religion and just twisting it a little bit. But that's a civil religion. And the problem with Christian nationalism, this idea that, that we're going to marry our, our Christianity to our political position, is it's straight out of Jeroboam's playbook. It's doing the exact same thing. It recruits new false priests. People who are not in the church are going to come and talk to us and lecture us about what it means to be the church. And they come and they tout this gospel, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of uh, the American dream. We can live the American dream um, and doing it under this banner of Christianity. And it tells us that America's greatness is actually just a pillar in Jesus' kingdom. It's part of that whole big story. And it's a lie and, and it's dangerous. And when you get to that point, then you see political upheaval done in the name of the church, when the church is not supposed to be like that. When Jesus faced, um, um, not Pharaoh, when he faced Pilate, Pilate says, Do you, don't, aren't you going to say anything? He says, look, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this earth. If it was, my followers would be fighting even now. And so Jesus is immediately, in that instance, dismissing um, this, this nationalistic religion. He's saying that's not what Christianity is like. So then where does that leave us? Where does that put us as the church of Jesus Christ in the middle of this left learning, leeching, or uh, lurching left and right lurching right? Where are we supposed to be? Well, that's Paul's answer is we must be the church first. Because what will the church do in a culture when the church is being the church? We will be salt we will be preservative in a culture, a preserving force. We will add flavor to a culture. We will be salt and we will be light. The church will prophetically announce the truth to the nations. We will stand aloof of who, which political party is, is the best 
And instead, we will be the church in the midst of that. And so that's why we have to understand these first steps to be the church. Now, last week we looked at, or last week, week before, we looked at verses one and two, primarily. We touched on this, but we primarily looked at those. And what we're told there is we are told to um, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a reasonable act of worship. That is a, a, a form of worship that is rational, that makes sense. And then we're told to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our mind. And so those were those two commands that tell us up front, you are different. You have been made different. Now live differently. And so where Paul goes next is he's going to pick us up and he's going to start to introduce to us, what does it mean for us to live as the church? And this morning, we're going to see the three important things that we need to embrace to be the church of Jesus Christ. The first one is humility. That's verse three. Once we embrace humility, then within the church of Jesus Christ, we can experience unity, verses 4 and 5. And then once we are humbly united to each other, then we can exhibit service to each other, verses 6 through 8. So that's what it means. Those are those first steps to becoming the church is to have humility, to experience unity, and then to live a life of service. So let's, let's take a look at what these, how these come together. Um, Beginning in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul starts with the grace given to me. So what was the grace that was given to Paul? Um, some people look at this and say, well, this is the fact that he is an apostle. And so he's claiming his authority. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the grace that was given to him. That's not his authority as an apostle, though he was given that authority by grace. But what I think he's getting at here is remember Paul's life before, before he became a Christian. He was a violent persecutor of the church. He had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He was a violent man. And then when we see him recount his history before he became a Christian, we hear that he was advancing amongst all his peers. He was um, of the right tribe. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great teacher of the day. He had all of these things going for him. He was more zealous than anybody else in all of Judaism. He, he was it. But what that meant was he was full of himself. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at what all I've done. Look at all the benefits that I have. He was full of himself. And so when he says, by the grace given to me, I want you to not think more highly of yourself. He's saying, look at me. Before I became a believer, I thought extremely highly of myself. I was super proud. That's why in 2 Corinthians, when he goes through, he kept saying, why am I speaking like this? I'm insane. I, can't, I have to keep recounting all my, my, my pedigree. And it's, it's, it's driving me nuts. He looks back at that and he says, that was reeking with pride. And I want to put that away. So you guys, when you think about this, I want you to consider me and the grace that God extended to me. He gave me the grace to set all of these things aside, to put aside that and consider it all rubbish, to consider it all trash. So this is the grace that I want you to think. And then he says, I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Um, this is actually a, a real danger because back in chapter 11, remember, he's using the illustration of the olive tree. And he said, so you wild branches, you Gentiles are going to look at the olive tree and say, well, some of those branches were yanked out so that I could be put in. And, he, and his answer was, he says, so don't be proud, but fear. 
And I don't remember, I don't know if you remember at the time, I said, why would he tell us to fear? And the reason he would tell us to fear is because we are justified by faith alone, period. And then what we learned is that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we were foreknown. And what we saw was this was all of God's doing. It doesn't depend on man's will or his effort. It all depends on God. So if we look at somebody else and go, well, I'm in and they're out, and it's because there was something inherently in me that God wanted that they didn't want in them, then what you're relying on is not faith. You're relying on something in you. And so that should cause you to fear. Pride can do that. Pride can lead you to, to actually believe there is something about me that God just saw and went, man, I got to have me one of them. And it's just not true. God chose you because he chose you. So don't be proud, but fear. So he tells us here to not think too highly of ourselves. It's really easy to do that. It's really easy to begin to think too highly of yourself, to think, well, I'm saved and that person's not, and I understand God and they don't, therefore I must be, and, and it's a war. It's something that we have to fight against. It's something we have to wrestle against. And the good news is God doesn't want you to do that alone. He, he doesn't expect you to do that all on your own. And boy, you better get this straight. Twice in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5, God makes an incredible promise to us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Would you like more grace to be humble? Then don't be proud. <laughs> okay, so what then is humility? If what Paul is calling us here is to, to think uh, properly of ourselves, what does it mean to be humble? What it means to be humble in, in the Bible is not um, you would never draw attention to yourself and, oh, it's, you know, poor me or anything. Moses was said to be the most humble man. And boy, could he be fiery when provoked. Jesus was humble. He humbled himself um, to the point of death on a cross. And yet, boy, could he light up some Pharisees when he needed to. Paul talks about his own humility, but boy, could he get mad at people. So to be humble is not to be a, a doormat or a milk toast or something. To be humble is to agree with God, to say, Lord, I agree with who you have made me to be. That's who I am. And so could somebody say, I am the greatest crocheter in all of Southern California and be humble? It could be that they are being humble if that's true. If they are the greatest crocheter in all of Southern California and they know it, it would be false to say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. Um, it would be true to say, well, I actually am the greatest. But the problem would be if they say that to bring attention to themselves and make themselves seem really super important. In other words, um, I, I see that you're crocheting, but you're not that great. I'm the greatest. Let me show you how it's done. Versus, you know, I'm, I'm the best crocheter in all of, all of Southern California. Can I teach you how to do that? That's, that's humility, is to agree with who God is, not to, to, to dismiss who you are. And actually, the idea that we are saved by grace through faith should lead to humility. It's intended to. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when Paul says that we ought to think um, 
uh, with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, his answer there is giving us the key to becoming humble. The faith that God has assigned is God gave you the faith. Remember, it's not according to human will or exertion. Um, it is not, uh, you've been saved by faith and it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So that's the first step to becoming humble is to say, I, I, this isn't me. This isn't because I'm so clever. The second part is actually what he said first, which is think with sober judgment. To think with sober judgment, um, that does not mean don't drink alcohol. That's not what the sober part, part means there. Although don't drink alcohol to the point where you're not sober. Um, but he's, he's talking about thinking with temperance and sound judgment to think rightly. Uh, the word is also used in Titus 2.6 where it's translated as self-controlled. So it, it doesn't have to do with necessarily being drunk, sober judgment. It has to do with be honest in your assessment. Consider yourself. So when you consider yourself and you're tempted to think, well, there must be something great in me because God chose me. Be sober-minded, be, be uh, of sound judgment and say, you know, but I know me. And I know those thoughts that come up when unbidden in my mind sometimes. And I know those desires that swell in my heart at times. And, and I recognize my reaction sometimes to other people as uh, being full of pride or, or arrogance or looking down on them or being threatened or intimidated by them. So with sound judgment, consider the fact that God saved you. Um, one of the problems is, is Paul here is arguing against thinking too highly of yourself. Um, sometimes within Reformed circles, I hear people go the other direction. Um, they think too lowly of themselves. I am just a worm, and I'm terrible, and I'm such a horrible person, and everything I do is sinful, and it's, it's broken, and, and I'm terrible. And there's something to that. I mean, we did go through Romans chapter 3. There's no none righteous, no, not one, none who seek him. Um, but that's not the whole ex expanded picture. That's not everything that the Bible has to say. Um, that's the right place to start is Romans chapter 3, none seek after God. Romans chapter 5, we have all fallen in Adam. But at the same time, we can do good things, commendable things. They're not going to save us, but they can be commendable. So when I was reading in the Valley of Vision, um, I, I would hit a couple of those prayers that were all just, I am such a worm and I'm so terrible and I do everything horrible. And I just get frustrated with them and kind of flip past. But then fortunately, I came across one and then one of the lines said, my sin is to look on my faults and be discouraged or to look on my good and be puffed up. And, and that's the danger. So what Paul warns us first and foremost, what we must be as the church is humble. We must agree with God what we're like. We are not so wonderful that God just had to save us because we were so so special in his eyes. Aren't, aren't they, darling? I want one of those. Nor are we so horrible that we can't be good to anybody at any time. So we have to look at that with sober judgment. That's forming the way you think. That is kind of being renewed in your mind is to say, I'm going to listen to what God has to say about me, and that's what I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to trust. God says that I am um, uh, opposed to him, and yet I'm his image bearer. I was made in his image. He has put me above all the rest of creation, and so I have a special place. And then to look at others around us and say, everybody else is just like me. They're all broken and sinful and fallen, and yet 
They have a special dignity because God made them just a little lower than the angels and put them in charge of all the earth. And so I can't look to my political opponent and say, they're a worse person than I am. I know me thinking with sober judgment, I can say, I just haven't articulated it in that way, but you know, I, I know what I'm like. And so you begin to humanize each other within the church. We humanize each other this way. And we recognize that there's more to it than just us. So the next thing, if, if we're humble, if we have grasped on humility, if we're growing in humility, then the next thing that happens is unity because we don't think we're better than anybody else. Verse four, for as in one body, we, are, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So this is a favorite metaphor of Paul when he talks about the church is the body. He talks about it in uh, 1 Corinthians a couple of places, 12 and 14. Um, it's a regular metaphor that he uses as we are one body. So he looks at the body and he said, you know, the body has different pieces to it. A foot is not an elbow. They just don't function the same way. They don't do the same kind of thing. Uh, the, the eye is not like your... Um, your hips, they don't function. They don't do the same thing. They look different. They behave differently. They function differently. And yet, when they're all put together, that's one body. And so he says that just like the body has different members and they don't all have the same function, so we, we're just like that. Though we're many, we are one body in Christ. Though we have different functions and different ways of understanding things and different ways of doing things, we are one body in Christ. So when we look at the church, especially in light of the, um, the situation our nation is in, we don't have to look and say, well, everybody in this church had better be the same political party as me or we can't get along. What the picture that Paul is talking about here is if we understand, first of all, humility, then we can look at the body and go, you know, there are differences of opinions here. There are different ways of understanding and approaching things. And, and it's okay because Jesus has saved all of us. The, the, the measure by which we understand that we're saved is not our political affiliation or our income levels or our uh, education background. It is faith in Jesus Christ, period, end of discussion. And so we can experience that body together. But at the same time, we don't blend into some mushy, boring, um, uh, beige middle ground where we don't have an opinion about anything or any, or any of those kinds of things. Because in verse five, he says, we are individually members one of another. Um, it's the same thing he says in first Corinthians 12. He says, we're individually members of the church. So think about what it looks like in the church. You don't blend into a boring middle. You don't turn into some bland nothing in the middle. You are individually, you as a person are individually a member of this. You maintain your distinctives. You maintain how you are unique and different in other things. You maintain your opinions. So to become part of the body of Christ is not to give up your individuality. Uh, think about um, Revelation 7, the great throne, right? Paul or uh, um, John turns around and he sees a, a number of people too vast to count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and kindred. They're all there. And he recognizes the diversity God happens to like diversity. He doesn't have a problem with that. So when he draws people into his church, he does indeed draw people from different diverse backgrounds with different uh, diverse opinions. 
And, and we don't have to agree down to the last little jot and tittle of every single thing in order to be the church. It's better if we have diversity. And, and that's one of those things that as an institution, we can actually help our nation. Because what our nation is forgetting right now is how to live together as Americans, a diverse group of people with personal liberty. And instead, there's jealousy, there's um, you know, uh, income disparity, there's, there's um, people treading on my rights and, and those kinds of things. And we're forgetting how to do that. But if we can come together as the church, if we can worship together with different opinions and different approaches and different things, different, different takes on what happened on the 6th in, in uh, DC, if we can still come together and worship, there's hope because we're united by something greater, something grander than the American dream something greater, something grander than the, the American Constitution. We have a unity that can surpass that. And therefore, we can inform America on how they can try to begin to live together as well. But we do it by being the church, by making disciples. And so when we experience that unity, when we experience that life together, then we go, something's different with these people. How can they, how can they be unified like that? How can they be together that way? And so finally, it comes down to once we're humble, once we've humbly accepted each other, once we recognize there's diversity in this body, but we are unified because we are Christ's people, then we can do the next thing, which is serve each other, verses six through eight. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, act, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So this is one of those lists in the Bible that uh, people like to appeal to for um, uh, spiritual gifts inventories. Uh, let me just make a little clarification up front. There is a difference between a spiritual gift, which is something that God gives to an individual, and the fruit of the Spirit, um, uh, Gen uh, Galatians uh, 6. The fruit of the Spirit are these characteristics that come out of us because we have been filled with the Spirit, because we have been made new. And so everybody should be experiencing and growing in those fruits of the Spirit. Not everybody is going to have all of these gifts. And the other thing I want to say before we look at this list is this is not an exhaustive list. There is no exhaustive list of the gifts of the Spirit in the Bible. Um, so the spiritual gifts inventories, we would like to go there and pick out which one of these did I get, but that's not how it works. It, it, it doesn't happen that way. But what Paul says then is, is having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there was a measure of faith that was given to us. There's differing grace given to us as well. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. Remember how he started? I appealed to the grace given to me. So he, he's appealing out to the grace here, and he said, let's use these gifts that God has given us because he has given it by grace to the church. And so we look at the church. We acknowledge our, uh, humbly that we are no better than anybody else in the church. We look at the church and we say, though we're different, though there are various people doing different things, we're unified. We have a unity in Christ. And now we say, okay, so if that's true, then how can I serve that other person? What can I do for this other person? How can I reach out to them? How can I help them? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The grace that God gives you when he gives you a gift is not for you. 
It's not primarily first and foremost for you. If you look through the list that's here, they are all other focused. Prophecy, we'll talk about prophecy in a moment, but prophecy, you're speaking the word to somebody else. Service, you are serving somebody else. Teaching, you're teaching somebody else. Exhorting, you exhort, you go to somebody else and you exhort them, you encourage them, you, you build them up. Um, one who contributes, you're giving money to somebody else. Uh, if you lead, if you're leading and nobody's following, you're not leading. So you're doing that on behalf of somebody else. Acts of mercy, you extend mercy to somebody else. Do you see immediately these services are all outward focused, others other oriented. So what is prophecy? That's the big elephant in the room. This is the one that um, everybody wants to know what, what prophecy is. Um, there's a number of approaches to uh, understanding prophecy. Uh, one is to say prophecy was like the prophets of the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. Uh, imagine Isaiah going to the king of the north and saying, thus says the Lord. Um, of uh, of uh, Jeremiah coming to the, the king of the south and saying, thus says the Lord those kinds of things. And um, people who uh, understand it that way, there's a lot of them will say that kind of authority, that kind of prophecy would run counter to the authority of the scripture. The Bible is sufficient. It is clear and it is complete. We're not going to add to it. And so those folks would say, well, the gift of prophecy actually ceased. It ended when the New Testament was written. And so prophecy is not functional today. Um, and you can, you can get that if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, beginning in verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. There you go. They passed away. Um, the problem is you got to keep reading. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Is knowledge gone? Then I don't think tongues and prophecy, based on that, can say are, are gone. Um, so... That maybe is not the best way to approach it, um, because we're asking the Bible to be sufficient and authoritative to tell us that prophecy has ended, and the Bible doesn't tell us that. As a matter of fact, it mentions things like this, where prophecy is spoken of. Another subcategory there is some folks will say prophecy is preaching, because what are you doing in preaching? Well, you take God's words, and you announce it to the people, and you say, thus saith the Lord, and so is that prophecy. Um, that's not too bad, but what comes next is um, teaching. And is pro preaching and teaching so dynamically different that, that one would be called prophecy and one wouldn't? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that really works. Uh, so then the other kind of side of that fence is people who say everybody prophesies all the time. You know, the Lord told me to tell you. Um, you know, the Lord gave me a word for you, brother. Um, and so is that prophecy? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Um, I'm not sure that that really fits because that kind of does run into the issue of the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Uh, so maybe not everybody prophesies. As a matter of fact, if we keep going with um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29 says, are all prophets, are all apostles, or are all teachers, do all work miracles? So not everybody prophesies. Not everybody teaches. Not everybody works miracles. Uh, so maybe that's not what prophecy is. Um, what then is prophecy? I, I, I'm going to be honest right up front. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a really good solid answer for this. But I do know that uh, there are a couple of things that are true of prophecy. Um, first of all, it doesn't happen very often in the New Testament. 
there's only four things in the New Testament that are clear, direct, spoken of as prophecies. First of all is um, Agabus prophesied that there would be a famine in the time of uh, Claudius, and it happened. So that, that was one. Agabus and others prophesied about what would happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem on his final missionary journey. So that's another one. Paul tells Timothy to remember that the apostle or that the elders laid hands on him and the prophecies that were spoken over him. So he's to be a preacher. And so that's that's one. And then the last one is the inclusion of the Gentiles is spoken of as coming from the apostles and the prophets. So it doesn't happen a whole bunch. Um, also, it's not the kind of thing where sometimes somebody would just spontaneously burst forth in a prophecy and start yelling and screaming, because what the Bible says is that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's again in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And so God's not a God of confusion. So the prophet doesn't have to just explode and start preaching because the spirit has moved upon him. Um, but where I think it gets really strange is when we start understanding more broadly, biblically, what does the Bible talk about as prophecy? Yes, we have the books of the prophets, and they are, thus saith the Lord, and they're really clear. But there's also some really bizarre examples of prophecy. First uh, Corinthians or First Samuel uh, 19, um, Saul, when he's first being called, uh, or Saul is, is told to go, and he runs into the prophets, and the prophets are coming down the mountain playing on tambourines and and making music and singing, and then Paul just gets overwhelmed, and he starts prophesying, and he lays naked on the ground overnight. Um, that doesn't sound like a thus saith the Lord moment to me. Uh, so maybe what we were talking about when we talked about prophecy is um, you'll know it when you see it. Um, someone will have a very authoritative and clear word. Does that mean that we have to write it down and include it in our Bibles then? Um, I don't think that's the best answer either, because why are the scriptures in our Bible that are in our Bible? Well, it's because they were used by the early church. They were given under apostolic authority. They were recognized by the church as authoritative. So if somebody comes to you today and says, thus saith the Lord, and it turns out to be a true prophecy, it won't go in the Bible because it can't meet those first criteria. But whatever prophecy is, one thing it's not is when I've done the uh, spiritual inventory, uh, spiritual gift inventories, um, it is a Often anybody who has a critical spirit is told they're a prophet. Um, if I complain about and correct people quite often, then I must be a prophet. That's not it either. Um, I think maybe the better way to go would be leaning towards the, uh, the preaching as prophecy. I'm not sure. But whatever it is, these gifts, like I said, they're all oriented toward the other. Um, if you have a gift of prophecy, if you're preaching uh, to somebody that is aimed towards somebody else. And then Paul says, if you use them, use them in proportion to the faith or to our faith or the faith. It's in proportion to faith. So if, if you're prophesying, it's got to be in proportion to the faith. And it doesn't say whose faith. It just says in general. Um, now, does that mean that everybody else is not got to have anything to do with faith in those other gifts. No, I don't think that is. I think Paul uses this as kind of introductory statement to the rest of them. Um, so we could say uh, in proportion to faith for any of these in serving, if, if you serve, um, then it's done in proportion to faith. It's done in, in response to faith, uh, teaching, uh, exhorting, those kind of things. How do those become spiritual gifts rather than natural inclinations and abilities? So if somebody is naturally into service, or somebody is naturally a teacher, and they become a Christian, and they continue to do those things, 
does that become a spiritual gift? Well, it does when it's done in the context of faith. Um, it could be a natural inclination, a natural ability to do these things, but when they're done in the context of faith for the benefit of the church, in the context of all that's going on, then I think that's when it becomes a spiritual gift. So serving. Um, one of the best examples, I think, of serving is Jim Wildeman. He just has this innate bent to serve, to help. If, if he hears about a need within the church, his first response is, well, how can we help? What can we do? And, and it could just be Jim's natural personality, the bent of his personality. But when he's doing it in the context of the church, he's doing it in the context of faith, of building up the body. He's doing it from a position of humility. He's doing it from a position of unity. He's, he's actually engaging that way. The next one is teaching. Um, I thank God for Dan Stromberg's gift of teaching. I was listening to the Sunday school this morning and just really blessed by that. Um, Dan could go and teach a class on, um, on uh, discrete electronic repair, and he would have the same teaching abilities, the same teaching mannerisms, the same ways of approaching it. But when he does that in the context of the church, when he teaches us from the word of God, in the humility of saying, I, this doesn't make me better than anybody else in this room. It just makes me different. It makes me one of them. Um, when he does it on behalf of the church, that's a spiritual gift that he's giving. That's a spiritual blessing that he's giving to each other. He, he's pouring out himself on behalf of us. Um, the one who exhorts. Have you ever been exhorted? Have you had, ever had somebody come to you and just say something and you walk away feeling like a million bucks and you think, man, I really needed to hear that. That, that can be a spiritual gift. It can also be flattery. And so we need to be careful with that. But the, the gift of exhortation could be coming to somebody and pointing out something that they do, something that they're really gifted at, something that they have done that they didn't even recognize and what a blessing it was, and to build them up and to remind them, since it's done in the context of faith, this is the gift of God to you. This is what God has done in and through you. And so that can be an exhortation. Uh, contributing with generosity. Uh, we think of the tithe and, and giving to the church, and that's not a bad way to, to measure that. That's a good thing. But this, this act of generosity could be generous to all kinds of people, just like to a fault giving their money away. Um, I know a person who is a lawyer who makes a lot of money, and his wife just had to realize, we're not going to get much of that because he just is so generous he gives 90% of his money away, I think. He just is such a generous kind of person. And it's done in a spiritual sense. It's done not just because he's a philanthropist. It's done from that, that in the context of faith. And, um, and then finally, one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That, that's one that stood out in that, in that list. To do an act of mercy and to do it with not mercy, not eagerness, but with cheerfulness. Um, it can be difficult sometimes to perform an act of mercy because what happens when you engage somebody who needs mercy is they're usually in a bad way. There's something something has, has happened. They have uh, ruined their life or something has been taken from them or something along those lines. And so what they need is mercy. And to extend mercy to somebody, to do it in a spiritual, in a, in a faith-filled way is to do it with cheerfulness, not with they're going to owe me or you better get me back or something along those lines. And so when we bring all of these together, humility, unity, and service for each other, 
These are the forming aspects of being the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in conformity to the image of Christ. And if we as a church are doing that, if we are making disciples like that, if we are encouraging each other in that, if we're making disciples out of each other in those kind of ways, and we are Americans, and we are Republicans or Democrats or independents, and we are engaging in these things, you don't leave all of this humility, unity, and service behind when it comes to your public life. All of that flows with you because it's changing your heart. It's changing your mind. It's changing who you are. And in that way, we can become better Americans by first and foremost being the church. And the church is both countercultural and culture renewing at the same time, because culture is people. It is made up of individual people. So as we impact individual folks, as we begin to work with folks and, and extend mercy and, and those kinds of things, we will have a salt and light impact on our nation. But don't do it by becoming first an American and then tacking Christian on at the end. You are the church of Jesus Christ. Be that. Now, where are you the church of Jesus Christ? Well, in this case, in, in the United States of America. And so that's what you are first is these things. And then you exhibit them in, in our nation. And maybe this is how our nation can begin to heal, can begin to draw back together. If God will bless the work of the church and spark revival, maybe we can see United, the United States unite again and come back together without being identical to each other, still having differences of opinions, but not hating and distrusting each other. But it starts with the church. It starts with you and I. Let's pray. Lord, would you extend a large amount of grace to each one of us to exhibit the humility that you love, that you give grace to the humble. So Lord, would you cause us to seek humility, to cause us to agree with you as to who we are, both the heights and the, and the depths, the good and the bad. And Lord, once we have embraced the humility of saying what you defined us as is what we are, then Lord, we can seek unity with each other because we know that we're not better or worse than anybody else, that we're all pretty much the same. And so Lord, once we have established that unity, once we recognize that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then we can serve each other. And that service will spill out into a watching world and it will affect how we live our lives, not just in church on Sunday, but at home and at school and at work and in the marketplace and everywhere. And so, Lord, would you make your church the salt and light that you have called her to be? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.